0: This is a download from Newstalk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking books on Newstalk 106 to 108.
1: You know, he said this very telling thing, for love I make characters. And what is extraordinary about Williams as a writer is how deeply he lived within his fictions. That in a sense, he lived more vividly inside his imaginary world than he did in the real world. Many poets and people do that. Uh, And the contradiction is that they can handle and control their imaginary world in a way that they can't their the real world which is which doesn't bend to their will in the same way.
2: What is the price of fame and how does success affect the famous? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan cahill On this week's show, award winning biographer, novelist and theatre critic John Lair talks theatrical realism, artistic reputation and the morally ambiguous world of Pulitzer Prize-winning American playwright. Tennessee Williams.
1: Williams, who wanted a relationship, he he wanted it and talked about it, but he didn't work for it. He expected it. And when you are famous, it changes because you are famous. You can't have intimacy without equality. And with fame, there is no possibility of equality. Merlot was always the passenger, and Williams is always the ticket to ride. And that was always the case. And so what's, what's interesting to me was how early in their relationship it became fraught and difficult, and how insensitive Williams was to the actual spiritual predicament of Merlot.
2: And British novelist Samantha Harvey explores the psychological complexity within all human relationships and her latest book, Dear Thief, a creepy story of love, marriage and betrayal. This is a show about paranoia and possession, friendship and trust, vanity and the self-destructive patterns of a tormented genius. But first, the interior world of the most autobiographical of American playwrights, Tennessee Williams. On the 31st of March, 1945, at the Playhouse Theatre on 48th Street, the curtain rose of the opening night of the Glass Menagerie. Tennessee Williams, the show's 34-year-old playwright, sat hunched in an aisle seat, looking, according to one paper, like a farm boy in his Sunday best. The Broadway premiere, which had been heading for disaster, close to an astonishing 24 curtain calls and became an instant sellout. Tennessee Williams was born in Mississippi in 1911. A lifelong depressive, alcoholic and raging hysteric, Tennessee craved literary recognition and intense human bonds. Now, while his iconic reputation rests on a handful of classic plays such as Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, The Rose Tattoo, A Streetcar Named Azar and An Orpheus Descending, his life, like his art, makes for fascinating reading. Tennessee's world was full of high-flown emotions, psychological dysfunction, pain, addiction, torment, and sorrow. John Lahr is a British-based American theatre critic, novelist, and biographer. Since 1992, he has been the senior drama critic for The New Yorker magazine. He has also written a variety of biographies and books of literary criticism. Incidentally, John is also the first drama critic to win a Tony Award for co-authoring the one-woman show Elaine Stritch at Liberty. His notable reads include Backstage with Barry Humphreys, Light Fantastic, Adventures in Theatre, A Casebook on Harold Pinter's The Homecoming, Acting Out America, Essays on Modern Theatre, Coward the Playwright, Prick Up Your Ears, Sinatra, The Artist and Man, and Hot to Trot. Well, John's latest biography, Tennessee Williams' Mad Pilgrimage of the Flesh, has just been published by Bloomsbury and is without doubt a must-read for all theatre-goers. It's absorbing, riveting and absolutely impossible to put down. I loved it. Now, while John set out to tell the story of these gigantic plays, he has also done a terrific job of charting the evolution of Tennessee Williams' shifting internal world and how the plays reflected them. It's quite a feat of literary detective work. I particularly enjoyed reading about Williams' stormy creative collaborations with Turkish-American director Elia Kazan and learning about Kazan's enormous influence on the structure, quality and creative direction of Williams' plays throughout the 1950s. What I found really surprising was William's inability to acknowledge the dimensions of that help. There's also very interesting stuff on Tennessee's relationship with his mother. She seems to have been quite the weapon. Well, over the weekend, I got a chance to talk with John from his home in London. We talked about the man who transformed American theatre and his titanic ego. I put to him one of Tennessee Williams' famous throwaway comments. I set out to tell the truth, but sometimes the truth is shocking. I asked John... Does he agree with that statement?
1: Yes, I think the truth is shocking. I think that, tr- <laughs> I think because people's capacity for self-deception and malevolence are, is infinite, so it leads it leads to some extraordinary, uh, melodramatic and outrageous behavior. You know, I mean, in Williams' case, it's hard to imagine someone trying to run him down in, in the sand dunes of Provincetown or people trying to manipulate his estate or, you know, just outrageous behavior that affects lives in various strange ways. I mean, if Maria St. Just, for instance, had had any understanding of how uh, reputations were made or lost, she wouldn't have put the constraints on the uh, university that controlled his archives so that no one for a decade could quote or even Xerox any of his papers. And so therefore, the discussion about Tennessee Williams after he died in 1983 just flatlined. It seriously hurt his reputation, although she was, in principle, as she thought, doing him a favour, I suppose. So these kind of things are truths that are, you know, are really shocking uh, when you see the, this sort of misguidedness of, of uh, individual actions.
2: They had a quite a close correspondence with each other for over about 35 years. I know that she brought out Five O'Clock Angel, his letters at one stage.
1: Yes, she did. That was her collection of of letters, but it's a very odd book. I mean, it, it, I reviewed it for the New Yorker. I mean, it's it, there are just gross factual errors in it. I mean, she first of all she writes about herself as, as the narrator of this collection as Maria Saint Just. uses the I. Form the first person, and she writes about herself as a historical figure, and she uses the third person. So she's a sort of ventriloquist in the, in the in the in the letters, and it's full of the most outrageous claims. I mean, the most outrageous for me is the claim that she did get Tennessee to get her to play Blanche in an off-Broadway production of *Streetcar Named Desire*, and she quotes Brooks Atkinson's review saying that her performance is one of the most nuanced in recent memory, and something like that. And I went back and looked at the actual review. It was a complete lie. Atkinson claimed that she was just inadequate in the role. She was the model for Maggie the Cat for some reason. Maggie the Cat, in Williams' play, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, tells an outrageous Porky that she is pregnant with Brick's child. And just to get her to claim her inheritance, and Maria St. Just, who was a sort of very minor actress, but ambitious, just lied to claim this inheritance. And there it is enshrined in a book. But there's a lot that's not true. And one of the interesting things, because I knew Maria and I mean, the letters were her prized possession. And when she died and since she died, those letters cannot be found. Now, it's my guess, but it's an educated guess that she burnt them for the simple reason that she probably tampered with them in order to make her relationship to Tennessee all the more legendary. I mean, the the things that I I catalog in the the biography, she claims when she met, the great meeting of Tennessee was at a party, and she claims that all the people that were at the party uh, that were there, which were luminaries of the English stage, they were nowhere near there. The Oliviers were in Australia, Noel Coward was in New York. She just is a fabulist, and the book is uh, full of these kind of confabulations, if that's a word. She was never Tennessee Williams' executor. She claimed that for herself. And they, they, the estate let her, she, she was in charge of Rose. And she was only in charge of Rose until Rose died. And so she didn't have legal claim, really, to control his papers. It was a combination of her assertion and the laissez-faire attitude of Williams' estate. It's quite complicated, but very interesting.
2: You describe him in the book as the most autobiographical of American Mm. playwrights. And to me, he's clearly a tormented genius and a master playwright. When you're bringing that an understanding to writing a book, how did you balance understanding his mental vulnerabilities to his clear creative genius? They're two different factors in his life, really, aren't they? And how did they tally at different times?
1: Well, that's a good question. First of all, what Williams said when he began in 1939 was he he wanted to make a portrait of his internal life and you know a portrait of 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 his spirit and that spirit of course like all our spirits changes with our with life experience and with the publication in about 2004 of Williams's diaries and notebooks and the publication a very excellent publication of two volumes of his letters which go up to 1957 I had access to a quarter century of unpublished uh, letters you could use those as a kind of global positioning device to see what he was thinking at the time and, and feeling at the time he was writing if you add to that the letters to other crucial collaborators like Ilya Kazan, his major director, and and Audrey Wood, his agent for a long period of his life, also to whom I had unique access, you get a very very clear picture of his of what was on his mind and the turbulence of his mind, which shifted as he went from being an unknown writer, uh, full of ambition and. Frustration to being this colossal success and on a first name basis with the world, and how success then changed his heart. So you move th- through various stages, and the plays, there's a synergy between them because the plays are autobiographical not in terms of historical fact but in terms of emotional content. So as he's trying to work out his problems, which he says, the play, he says, he writes, these plays represent what I was feeling at the time of the writing. So as as the, the the nature of the debate changes, you see uh, if you if you read carefully uh, the plays and the the letters and the life, you see the sort of moral spiritual evolution or atrophy, depending on your point of view, of his heart. I mean, he said because he he was so emotional and wrote out of feeling, he didn't have theses uh, so much as trying to chart emotional landscapes that you you see him. He said that he had to sort of keep his heart open. And one of the things that happens with fame and the famous is that as their power and uh, in life grows, they're, very often their hearts uh, become ossified because there's not equality in a relationships. And as his heart ossified through his own promiscuity, which he acknowledges in some of the plays, and through his own callousness, and he had to sort of lacerate his heart uh, in a way to keep it open. What you see is a sort of change in his plays from in the mid-50s on. His drink and drugs take him to the precipice, emotional precipice, that he can sort of report on. What happens psychologically and dangerously is that in order to break his kind of writing block, he destroys himself for meaning. And at a certain point, you sort of devour yourself and and he did and wrote about that that's in a sense what suddenly last summer was about
2: can I ask you, though, when we look at his career, and obviously he'd, he suddenly became very, very famous, very, very fast, and as you said, access to all the stars. But we see a rise in more dysfunctional temperament or an existing temperament that was dysfunctional. And you see a huge amount of guilt, a huge amount of shame and massive paranoia and vanity. And then when you look at the plays he was writing and the people who were supporting him, certainly his relationship with Frank Merlo, his partner, it all becomes very morally very ambiguous, Nice.
1: Yes, it does. Why it's so interesting is it unwittingly charts the dilemma of celebrity because Merlot was a, a good man, a, a strong fellow, greatly liked by everyone. And he ran sort of social interference for Williams, who was shy and difficult in, in public situations, although full of fun. But Merlot organized Williams and was caring and loyal. And had made great connection with people whereas Williams didn't but the difficulty is that Williams who wanted a relationship he he wanted it and talked about it but he didn't work for it he expected it and when you are famous it changes because you are famous you can't have intimacy without equality and with fame there is no possibility of equality. Merlo was always the passenger, and Williams is always the ticket to ride. And that was always the case. And so, what was interesting to me was how early in their relationship it became fraught and difficult, and how insensitive Williams was to the actual spiritual predicament of Merlot.
0: And he
2: became dreadfully lonely then when Merlot died, even though his destructive relationship with him, he descended into 10 years of depression and even more intense drinking. So ultimately, he paid the bitter price.
1: Yes, well, I think part of that drinking and part of that depression was the guilt at realisation of what he had and didn't honour.
2: Can I ask you about his affinity with the female psyche? Because he's written some mesmerising roles for women, which really cut to the heart of the... Female imagination, the emotional side of a woman, like he really calls it so well. If you compare him to the likes of Eugene O'Neill or Edward Albee or Arthur Miller, he writes women. He writes women the best. They don't touch him.
1: Not Not at all. I mean, first of all, the central psychic thing to understand about Williams was that he was a hysteric. And one of the things about hysterics, if you study the behavior of hysterics, is that they're very porous. They absorb the narratives of other people. They feel feel it. I mean, he became a hysteric at his mother's knee, so to speak. And his own terror, his own loneliness, his own fragility is in all those women's characters. He, as he frequently said, he is Blanche DuBois. He is Maggie the Cat, in the sense that he he can feel the female issue there. He can feel the desperation and the longing to be held, essentially, or loved. So, you know, he can find a way of being both the fragile, lonely person looking for a cleft in the rock to hide in, and he can also be the predatory male who is out looking for, you know, trade, Uh, So he has both sides in him and he has access to both sides. And one of the sort of startling things in studying him over time is that how incredibly intuitive he was about people and yet about himself, how sort of dopey in some ways he was.
2: It's amazing when you think that he had such an insight into humanity, into women, into all the chaos Yet, within all of that, how he lived his own life, it doesn't really make sense. It's its quite a contradiction, really, isn't
1: it? Well, it is. But I think it's not. if you're a writer, I think for a lot of writers, especially with Williams, you know, he said this very telling thing, for love, I make characters. And what is extraordinary about Williams as a writer is how deeply he lived within his fictions, that in a sense, he lived more vividly inside his imaginary world than he did in the real world. Many poets and people do that. Uh, And the contradiction is that they can handle and control their imaginary world in a way that they can't their, the real world, which is, which doesn't bend to their will in the same way.
2: So maybe he understood his life through his writing.
1: Uh, Entirely. But then he said he, that is, that is how he made meaning.
2: But then that would suggest that possibly he preferred his life and his writing to maybe people.
1: Yes, that's exactly what it means. For love I make characters. He was much more at home in, in, a, in a world in which he was omnipotent than in a world in which he was impotent. You know, I mean, Tennessee could not get himself to the bus stop. He had to, he had to be organized. People had to carry his bags, his money. He was in, he had to, they had to pack his bags for him. He was, in many ways, infantilized and infantile. He had this huge genius which the world wanted, and it was what he could do. He couldn't really, he couldn't really function in a workaday world. He wasn't normal.
2: His relationships, though, with his mother, from reading between the lines in your book, Edwina seemed to have been not just a basket case, but a dreadfully manipulating woman, a very cold woman. And then when we look at Rose, his sister, who ended up having a botched lobotomy, and the guilt and the fear that Tennessee had. It's very understandable that he ended up addicted to prescription drugs and alcohol and lived such a chaotic life when his foundations in life were very, very rocky.
1: I, I think that that's correct. And I I think that what, in the usual narrative, well, I mean, one of the things that I enjoy doing is changing the story. The usual narrative, which is taken, people assume that Edwina is, is the woman in Glass Menagerie, but Amanda in Glass Menagerie is the musical version of... Edwinna. I mean, they, and C.C., the father, Cornelius, is seen as the heavy, the hard drinking, cruel. They were equally violent, but in different ways. The father was abusive to Williams and, and angry. And Edwinna was emotionally, uh, was equally furious. They were at war, the parents and the children were sort of startled witnesses at this bloody feud which never ended and it was a it was crazy making and it did drive their the children in one case with Rose's case mad and it in a sense Williams is quite borderline and the third child who was the most normal ran for president of the United States so he wasn't didn't have all his marbles either and the thing that's important here is that although Edwina worried about her children and Worrying about your children is not the same thing as seeing your children and understanding who they are. And Edwinna never saw, as, and this is dramatized in Glass Menagerie, Williams was never seen for who he was. There were enormous secrets in the family. The, the father never t- explained his own very sad childhood to the family. So his anger, there was no source for it. They didn't understand why he was angry. Edwinna never admitted to the children... Um, she, she always put on a false face for the children. And she says in her own book, which is called Remember Me to Tom, you know, we all of us are, have to be actors to survive. And the beloved grandfather, who was the sort of major male figure in Williams' life, and the person he loved and left all his money to, I mean, he, all his papers to, um, and money to the grandfather's university, Swanee, he turned out to be gay. And he when he was blackmailed by people, he gave up the small pension that he had to the blackmailers and When his wife asked him what had happened, he said, "If you ever ask me that question again, I will leave this house and never return." So the house was full of mystery Williams was raised in a house where he was told he was loved, but he was never touched. The father certainly didn't kiss or embrace the children. And Edwinna, who was a monolithic purit, that's William's phrase for her, was disgusted by the flesh. She verbed her love, she talked her love. So isn't it interesting that Williams, in that context, seeks an audience through his playwright, seeks to be embraced by an audience, and seeks the embrace of an audience, and also in his place seeks to tell the truth, to expose secrets, the secrets and the and the, the delusions that come between people.
2: And how he presents families and secrets and the dilemmas in relationships. It, w- when we look at his life, you can understand where it's all coming from. Now, one of the things that I learned from your book, John, is about Kazan, um, and yeah. his director and producer. That in some way, when we look at all the theatrical atmosphere on stage, all the fantastic moments in a Tennessee Williams play... While Tennessee wrote it, certainly Kazan, in terms of his understanding of psychological realism and acting and method acting and understanding how you develop that on stage, that maybe he wouldn't have been as successful had it not been for Kazan.
1: Again, that's exactly right. And I think that became an issue for Williams because I think that's one of the reasons when when they break up, Uh, at the end of their long and certainly the most creative partnership in the American theater. I think one of the issues between them was the success of Cat on the Hot Tin Roof really upset Williams. Uh, He called it a prostitution. He claimed that the ending was the Broadway ending, was Kazan's ending, that he was forced to do that and that his ending was much more emotionally ambiguous. And he even went so far as to publish his own version of the of the ending in in when the book was published so that there too is the Broadway ending and there's his ending and he he called it prostitution it turns out that of course the play was a huge success in when they broke up in the letter uh, the breakup letter which is a furious letter where Kazan says to Williams get yourself another boy I'm not going to be criticized for giving you another hit what comes out is that when the play when Count on a Roof was about to be stay open on Broadway just before it was to open. Kazan said to Tennessee, look, we'll do your ending. We'll do your ending and forget about mine. And Williams said, no, let's do yours. So Williams, in other words, betrayed his own vision of his play for commercial success. And I actually think he could not accept that fact in himself, that he'd sold himself and his artistic ideal out for the success that he had. And so this narrative of prostitution is what they call psychologically projective identification. He is doing the very thing Kazan is doing.
2: As a biographer of Tennessee Williams, and you've written loads of different biographies on some incredible people in the theatre world, how did that sit with you when you have spent so many years working on this? How do you balance that when you're looking at the broad picture of somebody's life?
1: You know, biography is like a brass rubbing. What you're looking for is a better and more defined outline, and it just gives you a sense. Williams is still a great writer. Uh, It it just makes, it balances the picture. Without Kazan and Kazan's structural genius, there's no doubt that Williams had a lyric genius, but he was not really brilliant at organization. And... Without the wrangling of these plays and the dialogue and the pushing of Williams to write beyond himself, a lot of the plays that we that are now part of the Williams canon would never had the reach or power that they have. I mean, originally, Williams wanted to stage Cat on a Hot Tin Wolf as a, as a one-act play. I mean, he, he didn't even have Big Daddy coming into the, the third act. I mean, all that was Kazan's cajoling and, and arguing... So he, Kazan is absolutely essential to the success of Williams and the final product of Williams's work, and it's great, it's right that he should be invited into his legend. Uh, and so people have a sort of idea that things are created solo in art. They aren't. I mean, nothing is. It is a a, a, a large community of influences. And, and Kazan's was just enormous. So uh, it pleases me. It doesn't cheapen my view of Williams. It just makes it more complicated and interesting.
2: And that was John Lahr. Tennessee Williams' Mad Pilgrimage of the Flesh is published by Bloomsbury Publishing and retails at about 25 euro. It's one hell of a book. I loved it. Okay, coming up next, a novel about trust and imagination but first let's take a bit of a break
0: talking books on news 106 to 108
2: and you're very welcome back to talking books on news 106 to 108 i'm susan cahill it's great to have your company okay let's now move into the gripping eerie world of dark psychological fiction in the middle of a winter's night a woman wraps herself in a blanket picks up a pen and starts writing to an estranged friend in answer to a question you asked me a long time ago, I have, yes, seen through what you call the gauze of this life. But to tell you about it, I will have to share with you a brief story. Without knowing if a friend, Butterfly, is even alive or dead, our narrator writes, night after night, a letter of friendship that turns into something more revealing and recriminating. The letter reveals a betrayal that happened a decade and a half before and explores what is left of a friendship caught between the forces of hatred, bitterness and love. Samantha Harvey is the author of three novels, including The Wilderness, which was long-listed for the Man Booker Prize and shortlisted for the Orange Prize for Fiction and for the Guardian First Book Prize. Her second novel, All Is Song, was published in 2012 and is a fascinating novel of ideas dissecting the complex nature of sibling relationships and the role of philosophical inquiry. Dear Thief is Samantha's third novel. It's a wonderfully dark, intense and creepy read and offers readers, I think, an intriguing exploration of the importance of faithfulness and forgiveness in all human relationships. Samantha gave me a brief introduction to Dear Thief. Let's take a listen.
3: It begins on a winter's night, Um, It's the middle of the night. A woman is awake. She thinks that she sees an apparition of an old friend. And seeing her provokes all sorts of thoughts and memories about their friendship and about a betrayal that happened 15, 20 years before. She starts to write to her. Um, She sits down, starts writing a letter. And out comes... At first, what is just a a kind of how are you? Where are you? She doesn't know if her friend is alive or dead. She doesn't know where she is. And the letter begins to unspool. And she writes it over six months. And in that time, it turns into something more. It's uh, an outlet of frustration and, and anger about what's happened in the past. And it's a sort of act of revenge and it's also an act of forgiveness so it's many different things but the letter is addressing and and revisiting a betrayal that her friend Nina also called Butterfly had run off with her husband 15 years ago.
2: And the narrator is nameless and as you progress through the book it becomes clear that she may not be as reliable in terms of what she remembers from the past or what she offers as what happened in the past.
3: Uh, She did begin with a name I decided to take it out because I was interested in the idea of a novel with almost with no characters or every character is absent because the the person that's being written to butterfly is absent we don't know where she is or even if she's alive the ex-husband is absent he sometimes appears but he's He's sort of absent from the scene mainly. And I like the idea of the letter writer herself being not absent, but she's always behind the letter. She's never in view. She's always in the reader's blind spot and almost her own blind spot. So I like the idea of the letter being what the novel was and not the letter writer, that when we write a letter, we're always behind it. We're we're always invisible, and it's the words that we throw up that are visible and that constitute us. So I wanted that sense of her almost not existing, of the letter existing and her output being what she is, but she is a character being uh, invisible to us. And in fact, all of the characters being invisible
2: to us. It's a very interesting story. And within it, it really is a, a very deep and somewhat dark reflection on the nature of friendship and when friendships don't work and our mm. expectations in friendships and how we can be very let down in friendships and mm. our willingness to forgive friends.
3: Yeah. I think that sometimes the betrayals and the misunderstandings and the frustrations that happen in friendships are deeper and greater than the ones that happen in romantic relationships. Uh, maybe because friendships tend to span more time. They're there from, often from childhood, as, as in the case of, of this friendship between the narrator and and Butterfly. Their friendship precedes the marriage, and it's the greater insult or the greater injury and betrayal, really, that the friend has. Uh, left her down in this way. The marriage, she can sort of negotiate, she can revisit it, she can set out new terms for it, she can think about whether to go back to it, but the friendship is something that's more indelible and can't be changed, and if it can't be changed and it's been destroyed, then what's left of it, and that's really what the letter is trying to explore, the degree to which she can forgive, degree to which she still wants revenge in a way, although that's a strong word, but she just wants to be heard, she wants to get the last word in.
2: And it's a very philosophical book. And the one question I found myself asking myself as I progressed through the book was how we live with some betrayals, how at times it's very hard to let go of a betrayal. And sometimes we actually attach ourselves onto betrayal and make it next to impossible for ourselves to ever forgive.
3: I think that's true. I think that we all have in our minds, at some point, some more than others, a kind of inner narrative that goes on that's visiting and revisiting past wrongdoings, either things that we've done to people or that they've done to us that we won't let go of, that's sort of become part of the fabric of our identity, of how we see ourselves. And sometimes in those narratives, there's that urge to speak to that person. And often you can't because they have gone. That's often part of the story that they're not there. And you want to address them and you want to say, I want to tell you about this thing that you did to me, and another thing that I want to tell you is, and another thing I want to tell you, and it can go on in this, in this internal um, you know, dialogue with the other person. And in a way, that's what this letter is. It's, although it is a letter, we don't know if it's sent. And it goes on for so many months, it becomes more an internal dialogue that the narrator is having with herself as much as with the other person because she can't let go of the betrayal and also because she really wants to let go of it. She wants to see her way past it and she wants to forgive. But Every time she approaches forgiveness, she approaches that other thing that she just can't let go of that she wants to redress on.
2: And it's a very compelling letter and you're sucked in, you're driven into this world and into her world in a very creative way. I'm wondering, though, can writing a letter offer the person who's writing it some therapeutic healing of some sort? Do you think that if we write down our fears, what's disturbing us, or write down how we've been betrayed or not, do you think that we can heal ourselves in ways? Do you think a letter can offer it some therapeutic value?
3: A good question, because as a writer, I suppose my instinct is to say, yes, there's enormous healing power in writing about something that's happened to you and that you feel deeply about, but also just in writing, in, in writing a novel, I think it's a quite healing process in all sorts of ways, because you can explore all number of, of issues and so you look at lots of different things simultaneously and, and to some extent come to some form of resolution with them that you can't real life there is something that's really very therapeutic about writing and something very powerful about words and that's something i wanted to look at in this novel that the the letter is not just a letter it's almost a prison made of words that she traps her friend in and she detains her there in a way that she could never detain her in life she holds her there and while there she tells her what she thinks so in that sense um the the words have this extraordinarily powerful role so I don't know. I think that always words need to be accompanied by action. There's a therapeutic element to them, but there always has to be some action in the world. And that's what my narrator becomes frustrated by, really, that she can lay down this this version of, of things as she does, and she starts setting out a kind of possible fate. For her friend. But it's all just imagined and, and without any recourse to reality or without really knowing what's happened to her. There's very little closure for her. The, the novel ends ambiguously. And I think it has to because it is just words. She hasn't actually reached out to her. She hasn't actually changed anything in the world.
2: Do you think that there's some people that we will meet in our lives that we ultimately will want to possess? Do you think for some dysfunctional reason, there are these extraordinary relationships in life that you can get thrown into and possessiveness plays? a big part of it
3: i think we all we all know what it's like to be in a possessive relationship that doesn't have to even be um, a negative thing but i think part of being in love is is about possession in a sense maybe even part of the institution of marriage is about possession and you know my wife my husband the the sharing of rings that sort of tethering of, of one another and i don't mean this in a cynical way i think there's something that's kind of open-spirited about that, but it's also the source of all kinds of pains and, and frustrations for us all the time. And I, I don't think that possession of other people or our, our desire to possess other people is limited to romantic relationships either, and we think we do it in all sorts of relationships, but it's, it's very notably there in romantic relationships. It seems very human, and I wonder what love would look like without it. Perhaps it would be more sanitized and perhaps it would be less painful, but I don't think it would be as colorful, perhaps. But it is the source of pain for my narrator because she wanted to possess her husband to be his and for him to be hers. And she wanted to, in a way, possess her friend, for them to have an understanding, a bond that that couldn't be broken. And she finds that in both of those cases, it hasn't happened. And maybe that's the nature of human relationships that we ultimately really can't possess one another there is a kind of tyranny to even try i don't know but these are some of the thoughts that occur to me and that i wanted to bring up in a novel
2: how did your friend sam react to reading this book because it shines a light on the crazy things that can happen in friendships and the intensities within friendships and the dark places they can take you so i'm wondering when your friends were reading this book how did they react
3: that's a good question i actually don't think any of them have read it only my family and my and my partner have read it so far Um, so i have to get back to you on that one i don't know in many ways it's so absolutely unautobiographical that none of them could feel that i was uh trying to write a, about them in a in a covert way um but maybe it does bring up questions i i feel there are some friends i have that, who might read it and then It might open up a a conversation between us about, not about the subject of the novel necessarily, because it's not a subject that would be in our friendship, but just the desire to talk as friends and to honour the depth of friendships, to honour their potency and and how much they affect us and how deep those betrayals can go. I mean, it's certainly a discussion I'd like to have with any any number of, of my friends in an open way.
2: But it does demand of the reader or certainly it did of me, to revisit some of the failed friendships I've had in my own life. And it made me think about maybe some of the mistakes I have made. So I think anyone reading Dear Thief will revisit some uncomfortable truths in their own past. Because while you have sympathy for the narrator in the book, you find yourself asking, well, possibly there's another reason why this all happened anyway. So you look at the other side.
3: Yeah, I think that there's always this issue of complicity in anything that goes wrong in any so-called betrayal there's always I guess to put it simply two sides to any story and I think that we're always in some way however subtle complicit in the things that happen to us and I think it's something that my narrator comes to realize as she's writing the letter that she has a part in this and either just that she didn't do enough or that she actually did something wrong she she can't really decide but she begins to realize that that there are things that she might need to account for or apologize for
2: and that was british novelist samantha harvey dear thief is published by jonathan cape and retails at about €18 in hardback. OK, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Next week's books are all about sound, music and the silence in between. Talking Books is going to celebrate 75 years of the world's most iconic jazz label, Blue Note Records, with music writer and critic Richard Havers, whose latest venture, Blue Note Uncompromising Expression, is a killer read for all jazz fans. It's an incredibly classy book. Well, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Bernock, who helped out with this week's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy and Paddy Donoghue on sound. We've been talking books. Go easy, stay warm, and be well.
0: People just ain't no good A thing that's well understood You can see it everywhere you look. People just ain't no good. We were married under cherry trees. Under blossom, we made our vows. All the blossoms come sailing down. Through the streets and through the playground, the sun would stream. K- Think I pigeons cool, that people they just ain't no good. To our love, send back all the letters. To our love, Valentine's blood. To our love, let all the children lovers cry. you, some even try They nurse you when you're ill of health They bury you when you go and die And that in their hearts they're bad They'll stick by That's just bullshit, baby.